Job chapter 21. Job chapter 21 is the halfway point of the book of Job. Good thing is that we are more than halfway through our series. This is the 19th sermon in the book of Job. There are 11 more after tonight, okay? And then we will be done with the book of Job at the end of May. That's the plan. And so as we study the scriptures, we realize that God has so much for us, but the halfway point speaks volumes to us about our responsibility, not just to one another, but to the Lord. And we'll show you that here in just a moment. But Job is a relentless individual. He has lots of resiliency. He doesn't back down. He's not a weak man. He's a very strong man. Yes, he's very frail physically, but mentally he is strong. Spiritually he is strong. He's able to withstand criticism. He's able to withstand accusations, false accusations. He's able to withstand the innuendos they place his way. He's unlike any other man in the scriptures. And hopefully after 19 sermons, you have learned to see him as a great hero. If not, I have 11 more to convince you that he is the greatest hero in the scriptures because he does things that no other man does and handles things that no other man handles in such a way that it brings glory and honor to God. His friends do not let up. They become more harsh. They become more direct. They become more blunt as time goes on. And yet he's able to withstand all those blows because of his trust in the living God. It's a good lesson for us, because so many times we, we, can, we can succumb to the blows and we can be destroyed emotionally, but, but Job wasn't. And as we read tonight and understand more of Job, hopefully you'll be able to see that even all the more. But they were becoming more harsh in their comments simply because they would not agree or he would not agree with their assessment of his situation, that he is wicked, he has secretly committed wicked sins, and because he has, God has judged him. Well, Job's going to refute all that tonight. He's going to refute everything that Zophar said last week. And as he does, he's going to give a plea to the men. From that plea, he's going to give them three points, and from those points, he's going to give them a perception as to what is happening all around them. And Job's going to explain to them something they might not want to hear, but he's going to explain it to them anyway. So first of all, his plea, he says in verse number one, then Job answered, listen carefully to my speech, and let this be your way of consolation. Bear with me that I may speak, then after I have spoken, you may mock. Bear with me. Listen carefully. Listen diligently. Listen patiently. Why does he say that? Because they haven't listened. And they would be the first to tell you that they sat there and listened to him speak. But they didn't hear what he had to say. Because they never offered any solutions or answered any questions that Job had. So they really truly weren't listening because they had a preconceived idea. They had their own agenda that they wanted to push on Job. And so you've been around those kind of people who have their own agenda that when they ask you a question, they're not really asking you a question for information. They're just going to tell you what they think anyway. Because in the back of their mind, they've already conjured up what it is they believe. And you're not going to convince them otherwise. And these were Job's three friends. They were convinced in their mind that Job was wrong, that Job was a sinner, that Job was wicked, and this is why he has lost everything, including his health, but he's too stubborn to admit it. 
He's unrepentant in his heart. And therefore, God has judged him. But that's not true. He's a God-fearing man. He's an upright man. He's a blameless man. And the scripture testifies to that. And so Job says, if you guys would just listen for a moment. Just listen very carefully and very patiently. Those are good words for us because, you know, we don't listen very patiently. And we don't listen very diligently or carefully. And that's because we have an agenda. You know it. You get an argument with your wife, right? She's speaking to you. And you're not listening to what she says because you already know what you're going to say before she even says it. Because it doesn't make a difference what she says. You have a preconceived idea as to what has taken place. And you can't wait to spew forth your intelligence so she can understand your situation. But she doesn't. Because you didn't listen to her. That's what the Bible says in 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way. That, that, that is the most impossible verse in all the scripture. Live with your wife in an understanding way. It never says, wives, live with your husbands in an understanding way. It never says that. Because you see, they understand. They're really good listeners. But as men, we don't really listen very well. And these men didn't listen at all. But listen, even halfway through the book, it's a good reminder, I told you this on Sunday, that we need to be good listeners, not just to the people talking to us. Because you know, you've talked to people, and you know whether or not they're really listening to what you're saying or not, right? And just because these three men were around Job doesn't mean they heard what he said. Obviously, they never answered a question that he had, and they couldn't answer it intelligently or with, with wisdom because they had their own agenda. That's why they go off on these tangents every time they, they, they have a conversation. But yet it's so important for us to realize that listening is so important. God gave you one mouth and two, two ears so you can listen twice as much as what you speak. But it's so important in listening to, to the word of the Lord because Job's argument here is, is scripture. It's God-inspired. And so in listening to the words of Job, you're listening to the words of God. And we need to listen very patiently and carefully. Have you heard the, the story about the preacher who came and gathered his, his church together on Sunday morning and said, look, okay, listen. He read to him Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse number 1, that when you come to the house of God, you come, draw, you come and you draw near to listen. He says, look, if you're here today and you're not willing to listen to what God has to say, I want you to leave right now. You got to go. Because God's going to speak to you through his word. And if you're unwilling to listen to what God has to say, you need to leave right now. A third of the audience got up and walked out. He said, okay. Now, if you're here and you are here to listen, because evidently those people left because they weren't willing to listen, you're here to listen. But if you're not willing to do what God says after you've heard it, without question, without hesitation, and without reservation, you have to go. Leave now. You don't need to be here. You're wasting your time and my time. Another third got up, walked away. So there was a third of the audience left. He says, listen, you're here simply because you want to listen and you want to hear what God says. That means you are here because you really want to be blessed. The other people, they weren't in for a blessing. How do we know that? And he took them to the book of Luke, the 11th chapter, 
when it says in verse 27, while Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, oh, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Those are the blessed people. And so the preacher said to the people in the audience, he said, you're, you're, you're the blessed ones because you're here to listen and you're here to obey without reservation, question, or hesitation. And therefore, God says, you'll be blessed. And it's so true that we need to be able to understand what God has said in his word and listen very carefully. And you know, we need to listen very quickly. You remember the verse in James chapter 1, verse number 19? Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slower at becoming angry. We like to use that verse, James 1, 19, in the course of conversation. It has nothing to do with conversation. Nothing at all. It has everything to do with the word of God because the verses before it talk about being born again through the word of God. And then it says in verses 20 and following, you lay aside all filthiness and everything that will keep you from hearing what God has to say. James is saying, let every man be quick to the hearing of the word, slow at becoming, at becoming angry at the word, and even slower at not wanting to do what the word of God says. Let every man be quick to hear, slow to speak, slower at, at becoming angry at the word. And we need to be quick listeners. Why? Because God's speaking. So not only do we listen diligently and, and carefully and patiently, but we listen quickly. And you should always, always listen to God's word quietly. The Bible says in Psalm, Psalm 62, these words, verse number 5, it says, My soul waits in silence for God alone. We're to listen to, to God speak, but we can't do it if we're too busy. Or too preoccupied. You must listen quietly. You must listen expectantly. Psalm 62, verse number 5, the latter heart part says, For my hope is from him, from God alone. He lives in anticipation of what God's going to say. In Acts chapter 10, it was Cornelius who said to Peter, Whatever you have to say, say it, because we're here to hear. We live in an expectation as to what it is you're going to do. And he became the first Gentile convert. And so you begin to understand that God wants us to, to listen quickly, listen quietly, listen expectantly. He wants us to listen openly. Psalm 19, verse number, Psalm 119, verse number 18. Open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things out of your law. We need to be open to what God says, to everything he says. But so many times we're, we're not open. We're closed. We're closed-minded. You can't afford to be that way when it comes to the word of God. We're to listen reverently. First Samuel chapter 3, verse number 10. Remember Samuel? He was a great prophet in Israel's time. And he had one, his very first assignment was what? To listen. So he says, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. What made Samuel a great prophet? He listened to what God said. So too must we. And then Psalm 119.62 says, At midnight I will rise and give thanks to you, for, you, for your righteous ordinances. We should always listen to God's word gratefully. Thankfully. We should always be willing to say, Lord, thank you for what you said. Even though it goes against everything you thought you, you knew, it goes against all that because you want to say, Lord, thank you. I'm grateful 
for things you've said. As Job interacts with these men and tells them to listen quietly, put your hand over your mouth, do not speak, just listen. Maybe you'll learn something. We need to be the kind of people who learn to listen better than we do. Because God is speaking to us through his word. And so when we listen carefully or diligently, and we listen patiently, waiting for God to speak, when we listen quietly and we're quick to the hearing of the word because we want to listen quickly, you know, all those things begin to add up over time. And God speaks to us. And God shows us what he wants us to do through his word. So we listen to it. And we hear it. We do it openly, reverently, gratefully, thankfully, obediently. Because Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. How about you? Is that the way you are? So Job says to his men, very simply, guys, you need to listen. He says in verse number three, bear with me that I may speak. Verse number four, as for me, is my complaint to man? Nope. And why should I not be impatient? My complaint's not about man. My complaint's not even about you guys. I just have a question about what God's doing. A legitimate question. I don't know what's happening. I don't know why I'm in this situation. I wish I knew. You can't tell me. So you don't have an answer. You didn't listen to give me an answer because you don't know the questions I'm asking, but you've yet to give me an answer as to why. Verse 5, look at me and be astonished. And put your hand over your mouth. Refrain from saying anything. Even when I remember, I am disturbed and horror takes hold of my flesh. Listen, when things are bad, just listen. That's my plea. I want you to hear what I have to say because what he's going to say is contrary to what Zophar has said and what the other two guys have said. And that gives us three points he gives. That's point number two. His points are this. Who says the wicked always die young? That's verses 7 to 16. Where's the proof that the godless always suffer calamity? That's verses 17 to 22. And then number three, how can you say death always falls hard on the wicked? That's verses 23 to 26. These are his points. I want you to listen to what I'm going to say. He begins with, who says the wicked always die young? They don't die young. He says this in verse number seven. Why did the wicked still live? Continue on also and become very powerful. In other words, the wicked are not dying young. The wicked are living a long time. And a lot of righteous men have died young. I think of Robert Murray McShane, who died at the age of 29, who turned Scotland upside down with the gospel. Or William Borden, who died at 25 as a missionary to Egypt. Or David Brainerd, who died at 29, a missionary to the American Indies. And Jim Elliott, who died at 28, a missionary to Ecuador. They were all righteous men. But they all died young. So he's saying, who's to say that the good live a long time and the wicked die young? No one said that. The wicked live a long time. In fact, they even become more powerful, he says. He says, they continue also and become very powerful. Their descendants are established with them in their sight. And their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe and fear, from fear, excuse me. And the rod of God is not on them. Think about that. The wicked have safe houses. They live in a safe refuge. And you know what? God's not punishing them. God's not judging them. He's letting them live in those houses under the guise of safety. You're telling me that I'm suffering because of my wickedness. 
But I'm telling you that no one says that the wicked die young. In fact, the wicked live a long time. They become very powerful. They also become very productive. It says in verse number 10, his ox mates without fail. His cow calves and does not abort. They send forth the little ones like the flock and their children skip about. They sing to the timbrel and harp and rejoice at the sound of the flute. The wicked people have children who love life, who live life, who are excited about life. They're not suffering consequences because of the wickedness of their parents. Verse 13, they spend their days in prosperity. So he says the wicked, they're becoming powerful. The wicked are becoming more and more productive. The wicked are becoming more and more prosperous the longer they live. He says they spend their days in prosperity and suddenly they go down to Sheol. In other words, they're not suffering intense anguish because of some sin that's causing them to suffer to the end of time and their death. No, they just quietly pass off into eternity. They say to God, depart from me. We do not even desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what would we gain if we entreated him? They profane the name of God. And they profane it outwardly. We don't care about God. We don't care what God says. Who is God? They don't care, but they still live. They're not dying young. The wicked live a long time. The wicked become very prosperous. The wicked become very productive. The wicked become very powerful, even though they profane the name of God. So here you're telling me that the wicked die young because of their sin. I'm telling you, no, that's not true. They live a long time. So he says in verse number 16, Behold, their prosperity is not in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. In other words, their prosperity doesn't happen because it's in their hand. We talked about this on Sunday, right? Why is a man rich? God makes him rich. Why is a man poor? God makes him poor. First Samuel chapter 2, verse number 7. So he says their prosperity is not in their hand. Do you think that their hand made them to be prosperous? Nope. It's under the sovereign control of the living God. And so in verse number 17, he gives another point. Where is the proof that the godless always suffer calamity? How often is the lamp of the wicked put out? Answer, seldom. Or does their calamity fall on them? Answer, seldom. Does God apportion destruction in his anger? Sometimes. Are they as straw before the wind and like chaff which a storm carries away? Sometimes. But not always. You say God stores away a man's iniquity for his son, so he's already going to anticipate what they're going to say. You're telling me that God will store his iniquity away for his sons. His children will suffer because of his wickedness. Let God repay him so that he may know it. Let his own eyes see his decay and let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what does he care for his household after him when the number of his months is cut off? He says, you're telling me that if they're not suffering, their children will suffer. And they will suffer all kinds of calamity. But you know what? He doesn't care. Once he's dead, he doesn't care. Wicked people are wicked because they don't care about anybody else. They don't care. So he begins to answer Zophar's questions and say, listen, people live a long time who are wicked. And they live better lives than we live, and they're wicked. 
and their children are prosperous and succeed in all kinds of realms. And ours don't, but theirs do. Happens all the time. So evidently so far, you're wrong. So you get down to verse number 22. And in verse number 22, he answers this question. How can you say death always falls hard on the wicked? How can you say that? Can anyone teach God knowledge? And that he judges those on high? One dies in his full strength, being wholly at ease and satisfied. His sides are filled out with fat, and the marrow of his bones is moist. While another dies with a bitter soul, not even tasting anything that is good. In other words, he said, God controls everything. There are some guys who are wicked, and they live the fullest of all lives, and they, they, they die rich, they die fat, they die, they die well. And there are some who are bitter, angry, resentful. But God's in charge of all those things. He's bringing them back to the sovereignty of God, overruling all of man's affairs. Because Job believes in God's sovereignty. That's why the book is entitled The Suffering of Man in the Sovereignty of the Living God. So he says, verse 26, Together they lie down in the dust, and worms cover them, both the favored and the unfavored, both the wicked and the poor, the rich and the poor. They're all going to die, and the worms cover them. So you come to verse number 27, and this is his perception. Look what he says. Behold, I know your thoughts and the plans by which you would wrong me. I know your philosophies. I know your ideologies, but they're all flawed. They're wrong. For you say, where is the house of the nobleman? They're referring to Job. Job is a nobleman, and Job is a, is a wicked person. For you say, where is the house of the nobleman, and where is the tent of the dwelling place of the wicked? Referring to Job. Where's your house, Job? Where's your tent? Job, where's your job? Job, where's your health? Job, it's all gone. Have you not asked wayfaring men who and do not recognize their witness? In other words, have you asked a traveler? Have you asked anybody who's passing by in our conversation about what they have seen about wicked men and righteous men and, and the success of the wicked men? Have you asked them? Are you guys the only ones here that know what's going on? Don't you think the traveler knows? He has been out in places you haven't been. He knows things that you don't even know. Ask him. But you haven't asked him. Because you think you know it all. For the wicked is reserved for the day of calamity. And they will be led forth at the day of fury. Who will confront him with his actions? And who will repay him for what he has done? While he is carried to the grave, men will keep watch over his tomb. The clods of the valley will gently cover him. Moreover, all men will follow after him while countless ones go before him. In other words, men are going to die. Some die before this guy. Some die after this guy. But listen, even in his death, he is carried to the grave. And when he's carried to the grave, there's a eulogy that's presented. And people will speak good things about this guy, even though he was wicked. Because that's what the people do. Verse 34, how then will you vainly comfort me? For your answers remain full of lies. I told you last week, they lied. Everything they said was false. Everything they said about Job was false. The things they said about eternity was true. 
but they misapplied it to Job and they slandered Job because they did not want him to think that righteous people suffer, only wicked people do. So that leads us to this question. Why is that wicked people have such great success in this life? Because they do. Why is it cheaters prosper? Liars prosper. Why is it people who are, who are so nasty and live sinful lives feel no effects of their sin, no consequences for their sin, and they get away with so much? Why is that? How can that possibly be? You know why that is? It's because our God is a good God. That's why. It's the goodness of God, it's the kindness of God that leads man to repentance. Go back with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Listen to what Paul says. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Do, Do you think lightly of God's kindness? Do you look down upon God's goodness. See, God is a good God. The Bible says in Psalm 1968 that God is good and does good. Listen, everything that's good comes from God because God is good. And he only does that which is good. And we miss that. The Bible says in in Psalm 33, verse number five, the earth is full of the loving kindness of God. The earth is full of the loving kindness of God. Psalm 52, verse number one. The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Psalm 145, verse number nine. The Lord is good to all. His mercies over all his works. The Lord is good to all. The Lord is good to every man. We forget this. You see, God inherently is good. When the rich ruler came to him and called him a good teacher, Christ asked him, no one's good except God alone. So you must be recognizing me as God because you called me good. No one else is good, but only God is. In fact, the book of Nehemiah The ninth chapter says that God is slow to anger and of great kindness, great goodness. Psalm 32, Psalm 52 says that the goodness of God endures continually. How good is God? Do you think lightly of the the kindness, of the patience, the forbearance of God? The forbearance of God deals with the fact that he, he withholds judgment, right? And not only does he withhold judgment, he is good to those he's withholding judgment from. Think about it. God was going to destroy the earth. And so he gave Noah to them as a preacher of righteousness for 120 years. He, tell, he told Noah that he was going to destroy the earth with a flood. But it wouldn't be until 120 years later. As he kept building the ark 
and kept bringing in wood and, and putting that thing together. It was a testimony to the patience of God, the long-suffering of God. Why? Because God is a good God. You can't treat lightly the forbearance of God. You can't treat lightly the goodness of God, the kindness of God. Why? Because it's that goodness that leads man to repentance. When, God, when man recognizes that God is a good, guy, good God because he deserves to die once he's sinned because the wages of sin is death, but yet he lives, God hasn't killed him. Because God's a good God. And God allows wicked people to prosper. Why? Because of his goodness. They're without excuse. He's a kind God. He withholds judgment. He withheld judgment from Israel for 700 years before the Assyrian captivity. 800 years for Judah in the Babylonian captivity. That's a patient God. That's a long-suffering God who's willing to wait for people to repent. Remember in Acts 17, that God overlooked the times of ignorance, but is declaring that all men everywhere should repent. What did Paul say to the people at Lystra in Acts 14? He said that God did good and gave you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfied your life. Why? Because he's good. Paul said that to the unbelieving city. Why do you have rain in your seasons? Why does he satisfy you with good things? Because God is good. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, right? The sun to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. God does all those things because God is a good and loving God. Because he knows it's his goodness that leads man to repentance. So you can't treat lightly the, the, the patience and the, and the goodness of God. The question never is, why does or why do certain people suffer and others die? No. The question always is, why does God let anybody ever live? That's the question. That's because he's good. He's kind. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, verse number 4? The love of God is patient. The love of God is kind. In that whole chapter about, about love, the definite article appears twice before the word patient and the word kind because it describes a specific kind of love. It's the love of God. The love of God is patient. It's forbearing. It bears up under all your resistance, right? And while God does that, his love is kind. He keeps bestowing acts of kindness, goodness toward those who rebel against him. The love of God is patient, forbearing. The love of God is kind and good. So when you, when you begin to wonder why the wicked prosper so so immensely and things go so well for them and their, and their children begin to succeed in life and, and they have all the good things, it's because God is a good God and he's bestowed goodness upon them because he wants them to come to a point of repentance and give their life to him. And yet there are times of warnings, many times of warnings that God puts in Scripture to help you understand that you need to repent because time will run out. In fact, over in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 
Paul says this in verse number one. For I do not want you to be un- unaware, brethren. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, right? Remember, there, there are seven different times in the scripture where Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be uh, uh, unable to discern what happened here. And one of them deals with the sins of Israel. You can't afford to be ignorant about Israel's sins. So he says, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. They died in the wilderness. In other words, God did all this thing, all these things for Israel. And yet, for the most part, he wasn't pleased. He laid them low. They died. Verse 6. Now, these things happened as examples. These are illustrations. They inform us. They're pictures. So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. He says, listen, when it comes to idolatry, when it comes to immorality, when it comes to grumbling, when it comes to those kind of things, don't do that. Why? Because some people died because of that. Now think about that. We don't don't put grumbling in the same category as idolatry and immorality, do we? We don't do that. Because grumbling is just mumbling. Mumbling is just murmuring. No big deal, right? Immorality, idolatry, that's a big deal, right? God's going to judge that. Ah, but grumbling, we can do that. No, you can't. Because 14,700 people died when they grumbled at what God did. God killed uh, uh, Dathan, Abiram, and Korah. Killed them. And those followers of them. And the people began to complain to Moses about what God did. They complained to Moses about what God did. So you know what God did? God killed 14,700 of them. Don't complain. Don't mumble. Don't grumble. Could you imagine if God killed you every time you grumbled? But why doesn't he? He's good. He's long-suffering. He's patient. He's kind. But Paul says to those in Corinth, listen, beware. You know about the biggies, idolatry and immorality. We know about the biggies. You don't do those things, right? But we look at grumbling as something that's very, very small. Not a big deal. But to God, it's a big deal. Because, you see, they questioned God's sovereign control over man. They questioned God's judgment and punishment upon man once he sinned. They began to grumble to Moses about that. And God says, you can't do that. Don't ever question me. Don't ever grumble against my sovereignty. Because you'll pay. Now, he didn't kill everybody. Just 14,700 of them. Why? Because God is good. I told you on Sunday, Ananias and Sapphira, why do they die? Why do they die in the church? They gave to the church. They were givers. They gave to the church. But they lied about how much they sold their property for. 
That can't be a big deal. They're still givers. They're still helping the ministry go on. But they just lied about the proceeds. And God killed them both in church. And the only reason God doesn't kill you in church is because God's good. He's kind. He's patient. Don't treat lightly. Don't think disparagingly upon the goodness and the kindness of God. God bestows goodness on people because he's a good God. He's a kind, loving God. In fact, he says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am meek and kindly at heart. Same word used in 1 Corinthians 13. It's talking about how God's love is patient and God's love is kind. He is kind in his heart. He's a good God. And the reason we don't die when we sin is because God is such a wonderful, patient God. We have a hard time understanding those things, but it is true. Listen to Psalm 145. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The Lord, his eyes, or the eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. Our God sustains the lowly. That's what God does. Because he's so good. Verse 16, you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Every living thing. You open your hand and you satisfy the longing of every living thing. You sustain the, lo- the lowly of every person. That's what you do, God. You keep them alive. You watch over them. You feed them. You take care of them. That's what God does because he's a good God. That's why it says earlier that they shall utter the memory of your abundance goodness. In verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all. Not just his children, but to all. So we know he sustains the lowly. We know he satisfies the longings. It says in verse number 18, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. Our God is so good, he sustains the lowly, he satisfies our longings, and he saves the lost. That's how good he is. He doesn't have to, but he does. It says, and the Lord keeps all who love him. Wow. He secures his loved ones. That's what God does. You see, Israel, Israel had a problem. The Bible tells us in the, in the book of Hosea about our God and how he deals with people's lives. Hosea chapter, chapter 11 When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called them, that is, the more prophets called out to them, the more they went from them. I love them so much, I give them prophets. But the more that the prophets called out to them, the more they turned around and ran the other way. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. 
God says, I sent them prophets. I wanted them to know the truth. I wanted them to know the error of their way. So I sent them prophets that would tell them about my coming judgment. And remember, God waited a long time before he sent Israel and Judah into Assyrian and Babylonian captivity. We sent the prophets. But they were unwilling to listen to what they had to say. They kept burning sacrifices or incense and offering sacrifices to Baal. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and I fed them. They turned their back on me. They rebelled against me. They would not listen to their prophets. You know what I did? I healed them. I went after them. I fed them. I took care of them. Because that's what I do. Then down to verse number seven. So my people are bent on turning from me. They are. Though they call them to the one on high, that is the prophets, none at all exalts them. None. None exalts me. Nobody cares. But God was so good to Israel. So kind to Israel. So patient with Israel. When I read what Job says about how the wicked prosper so much, the only answer to that is because God is good. Even to the most vile, wicked person there is. Sometimes they suffer the consequences of their sin. Right? One day they will suffer the inevitable judgment of God because he will, he will condemn them to an eternal hell if they don't repent of their sin. But they can never say or stand before God on the day of judgment and say, well, you, you didn't let me do this or let me do that or you were unkind to me or not good. No, no. Oh, no. No one, no one will have that excuse. They're all without excuse. Because the moment they sin, they still continue to live and breathe And God was giving them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Next time you think of somebody who's a friend of yours or somebody that you know at work and they seem to be in all the promotions and in all the bonuses and in all the money and, and everything that you're not getting, just remember that God is good and does good. And don't think lightly upon the kindness and forbearance of God. Because God is working to lead them toward repentance. Yeah, there are times that God passes judgment in this life on people, even his own people. And they suffer grave consequences because of their sin. But for the most part, that doesn't happen to you and me. How do we know that? How many times did you sin today? Don't answer that out loud, right? (laughs) But how many times did you grumble today? about something. Do you grumble about it's too cold? Do you grumble that your bills are too high? Do you grumble about your pastor being too long-winded? Do you grumble about not having enough warm clothes to wear? What do you grumble about? God lets you live. You're still here, right? That's why you can't ever afford to think lightly of the goodness and the kindness of God. If you go back to Romans chapter 2 again, and uh, the Apostle Paul says this. 
But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. It's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. But because of the stubbornness of your heart, all this is building up toward the day of judgment. He says, verse 6, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who, by perseverance and doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality, what do they get? Eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, what's their end? Wrath and indignation. God is a holy, just God. He does things his way. It's his world. Okay? We're his creation. He can do whatever he wants to do. He's in charge. And if he wants to be good to the wicked man, he'll be good to the wicked man. Job has a very good perspective on the prosperity, the productivity, and the blessings upon the wicked man. Even though that wicked man will profane the name of God, speak against God, defy his nature, God still is good to him. Because in the stubbornness of storing up wrath, in the day of indignation, in the day of righteous judgment. And they will pay one day. But until that time, God is still letting the sun shine on the unjust. Letting the rain fall on the unrighteous. Because as the psalmist said in Psalm 145, he's good to all. Not just certain people. But he truly is good to all. The purpose of God's kindness is not to give man sin or to excuse man's sin, I'm sorry, but to convict them of their sin. The purpose of the kindness of God is not for God to excuse man because of his sin, but simply to convict them of their sin that he might lead them to repentance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today, the opportunity you give us to look into the word of God. As Job understands that the wickedness of man flourishes and he begins to prosper, become very productive and enjoy life. He doesn't die young. Oh, some do. But for the most part, they live on. You bless their children. You protect their homes. And they don't even recognize your name. They could care less about you. But yet you continue to provide goodness to them. Because that's who you are. Our prayer, Father, is that we would see you as a good God. No matter what our circumstance or our situation, we'd see your goodness shine. And we thank you for those things.